Hey everybody, we're jumping back into our series, Forward Together in Love, where love is both the destination of the journey and it's also the way that we travel. We're taking a long, meandering kind of walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul identifies what love looks like and what love doesn't look like. And uh, so we were in this series back in the summer and uh, kind of leading up to fall. And we spent some time considering at least some of what it means that love is patient and love is kind. And today we want to think about what it means that love does not envy. And so uh, you can just kind of uh, track with the verses on the screen or you can have your Bible in front of you. Um, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so to start with, here's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 from the NIV, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. Here's the same verse um, in the NLT, love is patient and kind, love is not jealous. So jealous and envy are synonymous. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to kind of introduce some um, big picture ideas. And then next week, we want to drill down a bit on the details, get a bit more detail oriented and look a bit more next week at kind of the, the practicalities, I suppose. Um, and so to uh, begin to kind of paint a big picture for this morning, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, back to the book of Exodus. And uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, God is laying out his conditional covenant with the nation of Israel. And uh, in this uh, old covenant, very early on, we find this very early prohibition against coveting. And the uh, coveting is synonymous with envy and jealousy as well. And um, just in case you're new to following Jesus, or kind of new to uh, reading the Bible. This verse that uh, we find in Exodus 20, 17, it's, it's spoken in the um, kind of the typical patriarchal voice of the Old Testament. Um, and it can actually sound kind of uh, jarring or even offensive to modern ears. And, uh, but if you, you know, if you could have seen what God had to work with in that culture, like as bad as it was for Jewish women in the Old Testament, it was way, way worse for women in the, the neighboring nations around ancient Israel. And I think this is God's way of kind of easing humanity uh, into a better perspective on gender. But anyway, here's what this verse looks like. You must not covet your neighbor's house. Why? Well, because that's his property. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. Why? That's his property. You can see what I mean. Male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. It all belongs to your neighbor. And the point is, if it's his, then it's his. Don't go longing after it. Don't go wanting it. Don't go coveting that. We'll jump to uh, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 30. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. That not only is ancient wisdom, uh, but it is also modern day medical fact. It's actually good for your health to be content. People who learn to be content live healthier and live longer. 
And so the verse goes on, but jealousy is like cancer in the bones. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body, but jealousy is like cancer in the bones. And if you, um, you know, for people who live in jealousy, like chronic jealousy, it, it, it does, it has a cancerous quality to it. It kind of eats away at a person um, at the core of their being. Well, let's jump to the New Testament and we'll look at uh, three verses here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so Peter says, So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. And so Peter is identifying some of that which is uh, evil behavior. Notice jealousy is there. And by the way, these things, um, deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind words, uh, those things all kind of go hand in hand in hand in hand. And um, I'm hoping that sometime in this series, we can take a little bit of time to explore that. Well, let's, let's go on. Uh, the next verse, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. And so what, what Peter is saying here, he's saying, hey guys, you've tasted the Lord. You've had a blessing. You've seen that he's good. Now go all the way with it. Don't just sip and sample. Do you know that it's possible for a person to go through their whole life just sampling Jesus, but never um, experiencing that, that full experience of salvation. It's a bit like when Gene and I go to Costco. Uh, we don't go there often. I think we went there last, maybe in, in uh, November. In Costco, I like to sample, she likes to shop. So I'll go to you know aisle one and sample summer sausage on a toothpick eat that and, oh, did you enjoy that? That was delicious. Would you like to buy a case of summer sausage? Well, no, thank you. I'm not ready to commit yet. I'm gonna to go to aisle two and see if there's a sample that I like even better and go to aisle two and there's the little cup of you know, chocolate-coated almonds and to eat those, how did you like that? Those are delicious. Would you like to buy a case of chocolate-coated almonds? Well, no, I'm not ready to commit. I'm gonna to go to aisle three and I'm gonna see if there's something even better to sample and go to aisle three and there's some brie, nice and warm, on a little cracker and eat that? How did you enjoy that? That's delicious. Would you like to buy a case of brie? Well, no, I'm not ready to commit to that yet. In fact, I think I'm gonna go back to aisle one and have another sample of summer sausage. Always sampling, but never going all in, right? Never getting the case. And so you go to aisle one and you sample Jesus. Well, how was that? Uh, that's lovely. Are you ready to go all in on Jesus and have this full experience of salvation? Well, no, thank you. I'm gonna to go to aisle two and see if there's something that I like better. And so Peter says, don't just sip on Jesus. Drink great drafts of Jesus. Go all the way. Uh, grow up in Christ, mature in Christ. And when you grow up and mature in Christ, um, you grow out of deceit and you grow out of hypocrisy and you grow out of jealousy and unkind speech. It's kind of like if a, if a kid has uh, like childhood asthma or something like that. Um, and then when they grow up, they kind of grow out of it. 
Well, Peter's sort of saying the same thing. When you grow up in Christ, when you mature in Christ, you're going to grow out of jealousy. Why is that? Because to grow up in Christ is to grow up in love. And love is the opposite of these things. Well, what we want to do uh, today, we want to talk about jealousy, uh, envy. And uh, next week, we'll get into some more of the details and and some of the practicalities. But today I wanna take kind of a, sort of a bird's eye view of this chapter. Um, Because I think as we take a bird's eye view of of 1 Corinthians 13, um, particularly the things that Paul says that love does not look like, it doesn't look like envy, it doesn't look like uh, boastfulness, it doesn't look like pride. When you see the chapter from, from a bird's eye view, you get, to see that, that these things are not just arbitrary, um, disconnected um, words that are just kind of thrown into a list. You can see from that uh, 30,000 kind of foot view that there is a, a really brilliant inner logic in this chapter. There is something that ties all of these things together. and. Uh, So we're going to kind of stay big picture today, and then next week we'll get into some details. And so let's go as as big picture as we possibly can. And this is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. God is love. God is love. That is the simplest statement that you can make about God, and it is the most profound statement you can make about God. The fact that he is love is And to understand that, that's Christianity kindergarten and that's Christianity PhD. It is simple and profound all at the same time. God is love. Love is his DNA. That's his essence. Um, God is love, Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together in relational love, in relational oneness, Father, Son, and Spirit in triune unity. That's the very definition of love itself. The, the triune God is the very definition of unsurpassable love. And so out of love, God creates the world. And out of love, God creates human beings. He creates us. And love, agape, loves to give. And so God loves to express himself to us. And so God creates us with a desperate need for him. It's really a, a brilliant design. The God who loves to give creates us with a need for him to give. And so God creates us with with a a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. And there are needs in the life of every single person that only God can fulfill. And these needs, we often call them core longings, and they're good. The need to feel important, the need to feel worthwhile, the need to feel significant, the need to experience meaning and purpose, the need to feel like you're never going to be alone. In other words, we're created by God with a need to feel love, um, unconditional love, not just because of how we look or what we do, but simply because of who you are. And only God can fully and perfectly uh, meet that need. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful arrangement. And so God's, you know, God's creative design is that God fills us up with his love and his life. 
He ascribes worth to us. That's what agape love is, ascribing worth. He ascribes worth to us. He loves us. He fills us up with his love and his life. And then we ascribe worth to God. We reflect that love back to him in our worship and in our living for him. And then from a place of fullness, we then overflow with this love to, to all others. It's, it's really a, a brilliant design. In fact, if you think of it, we said that Father, Son, and Spirit is like the ultimate picture of unsurpassable love. And in God's design, he wants there to be like mini models, like microcosms of the Trinity all over the place. <laughs> Here's what I mean. So God fills me up with his life and his love. I reflect that love back to him in my worship. And then God fills my friend and my colleague, Ken Hawley, with love and life. And Ken reflects that love back to God in his worship. And then Ken, from a place of fullness, he spills over with love and ascribes worth to me and expresses love and worth to me. And, and me, from a position of fullness, I overflow with love and ascribe worth to Ken and, and, uh, and spill over with love to Ken. You can see that it's God and me and, and uh, Ken and, and God. It's, the, it's, it's um, what do you call it? A fractal. It's a never-ending pattern. And God's design is that all of us be filled up with his life and his love and that we all reflect that love back to him in his worship and that we all overflow with that to each other, ascribing worth to God, God ascribing worth to us, us ascribing worth to all others. It's a beautiful, beautiful, brilliant design and it all glorifies God. And to glorify God means it, it magnifies the character of God and God is love. And so God's plan was that there be like microcosms of the Trinity all over creation. It's beautiful, beautiful. But Genesis 3 happens, right? Sin enters into the human experience and sin is all about turning to self from God. Sin is something that drives us to be self-sufficient rather than God-dependent. Sin blocks the flow of life and love uh, into us. God still loves, but it doesn't get into us because sin is like a wall that deflects God's love and life from us. And this is what we call the fall. This is what we sometimes refer to as being in Adam or being in sin. Sin is like a wall that deflects the love and the life of God from coming to us. As I said, he still loves, but that love isn't filling us. And yet, we still have that God-shaped vacuum in our souls. That never goes away. That's a permanent part of your essence. And so you still need worth. You still need significance. You still need value and, and to be validated and, and so on. You still long for that. But if God is not meeting that need, well, now you've got to look to something else or to someone else to meet that need. And you become like a, hmm, kind of like a vacuum yourself, uh, just trying to suck up morsels and scraps of worth and significance and value from where, whatever you can find around you. And you know, if you, if you live from a place of emptiness rather than fullness, if you live from a place of desperation, I've got to get, rather than 
a place of celebration. I want to overflow. Well, then we're, you know, we're, we're not, we're trying to get out of life what God has already given us for free. We're not getting life from God, and so we're trying to get life from the, the, the people and the things around us. And um, we create a world of idols when we do that. An idol is anything in your life that you're using to try and fulfill a role that only God can fill. That's, that's what an idol is, when we're trying to suck a little bit of worth and significance and value and meaning from the things around us. That's, that's what an idol is. And this is what brings us to uh, our conversation about envy uh, today. Because when we live out of a place of emptiness and desperation, rather than from a place of fullness and celebration, when we live in a mode that says, I've got to get, rather than a mode that says, I want to overflow, then what happens is our world becomes like an arena. It becomes like a, like a field of competition. And we compete with other people for, um, for resources, for, again, for worth, significance, value, security, meaning, and so on. We're competing with one another uh, for those things. And everybody's trying to get the resources. Everybody's trying to get the attention. Everybody's trying to get the money. Everybody's trying to get the goods. Everybody's trying to get the security. And um, not everybody can win at this. And this is where envy comes in. And so here's a, here's a definition of envy. It's the feeling of resentment we experience when someone else gets what we want. The feeling of resentment we experience when someone else gets what we want. It's that feeling when we lose in that competition. It's that feeling of resentment, that feeling of anger, that I want, it should be me, and why can't I? It's that sense of perpetual longing. So you're in this competition and you're, you're scraping and scrapping after morsels and scraps of worth, and when somebody else gets the morsel of worth that you're trying to get, well then, uh, you're mad at them. And that's called envy, that's jealousy gets in the bones, right? It rots the soul from the inside. I want to take a second and talk about envy and justice and the difference between those two things. Um, I think it's really important that we see the difference there. There is a sense of justice in envy, but it's perverted and it's twisted and turned in on us. See, we're born with a sense of fairness. Everybody is. Um, there's this indelible imprint on our innermost being that just um, causes us to feel that life should be fair, that it should be just. It's just, um, it's just kind of built into us. We've got this built-in sense of fairness and justice. Like you probably, uh, I'm sure, never had to teach your kids that life should be fair, and yet how many of us as parents heard our children when they were uh, quite young say, Mom or Dad, uh, that's not fair, right? We never taught them that. It's just kind of there's this built-in sense of fairness, this built-in sense of justice, and it's, it's a good thing. But because of the fall, because of sin blocking uh, the flow of the life and love of God into us, well, now we're, we're trying to get life. Um, 
and our sense of fairness becomes bent in on ourselves. And so we have this sense of, well, that's not fair. Life's not fair. What about me? That's what happens when our sense of justice gets twisted and turned in on ourselves. So we need to keep these two things apart, justice and uh, envy. Now, sometimes people who are standing up for justice will get accused of being envious. Uh, but they're two different things. Let me give you uh, some examples so you can kind of get what I'm talking about here. So if, if at work you get denied a, pro a promotion and somebody else gets it because they're better qualified than you are, and then you sit around and you mope and you're resentful and you're not liking that person and you're talking unkindly about them, that's envy because it's just about you. It's, it's, it's twisted and turned in on you. But if you get denied a promotion because you won't sleep with the boss and that other person did, then that's, that's a justice issue. That's not about you. That's, that's about a system, right? Or if you don't get the promotion because um, that person's a male and you're a female, that's a justice issue. That's not about you. That's a justice issue. That's about a system. Or if you don't get the promotion because you're black and the other person's not, that's a justice issue. That's not about you. That's about a system. That's about a system. Um, and there's something wrong in this system that's preventing fairness from happening. It's bigger than just you. But, you know, if there's a house in your town that you want to buy because it's bigger than the house you've got, it's nicer and it's got more uh, features than, than the house you've got, but you can't buy that house because uh, your job doesn't pay you enough to be able to afford that house, but then your friend comes along and buys that house because they do have a job that can uh, help them to afford that house. Well, then, you know, if you're um, angry at them and, and um, kind of mad that they did that, you resent that other person because they've now got that house. Well, that's envy. You're envy. You're literally coveting your neighbor's house. But if you're, you know, if it's a different set of circumstances and say that you're black and you can't get the same mortgage from the bank uh, that somebody who is white can get, then that's a justice issue, right? That's not just about you. Um, that's a justice issue. There's, there's something in that um, system that is preventing fairness from happening. And, um, you know, we've got to see this. And I, and I think we're in an, an era right now where we really need to see um, and hear the call of God to, to be pursuing justice. God is really against envy because it hurts us, but he's really for justice because it helps us. And I think, as, as I mentioned, we're in a day where I think uh, we really need to hear clearly the call of God on the body of Christ to be a people who have a sense of justice, but not one that is turned in on ourselves. A sense of justice because we're looking out at other people. We're looking at uh, justice. We're looking toward the system of things that make things unfair. Here's something that God says in the book of Amos. Gives you a sense of his heart for justice and 
how he wants his people to be a people of justice. He says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice. That's a great visual, a, a, a mighty flood of justice. That's the heart of God. We're supposed to be a, a people who fight for justice, but not a people who are addicted to envy, right? It's two very, very different things. Envy is this, um, this erosion of the soul. And when we're envious, we're really, we're really kind of dropping down to a very immature toddler-like level where it's just about me, me, me kind of thing. We envy what other people have and we long for what other people have. And, and I'm quite sure that if we're all willing to be honest today, we could probably identify at least some area where this characterizes our life, maybe a large area where this characterizes our life. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you see this all through the pages of the Bible. In fact, we mentioned uh, the Genesis 3 story with Adam and Eve. Um, that's really a story about envy, if you think of it. Uh, how did the serpent deceive Eve, well, he deceived her into being envious of God. Eve, you know, God has something that he doesn't want you to have. He's got something, he, he um, boy, he doesn't trust you, Eve. You're, you're threatening to him and he's got something that he doesn't want you to have, but he knows that when you have it, you'll be just like him. And Eve, if you just reach out to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be just like him. He deceived her into being envious of God. And then right after that, you've got Cain murdering Abel. Why did Cain mur murder Abel? Well, you know, God likes your sacrifice better than he likes mine. And so he uh, is envious of his brother, jealousy, and he kills him. And you think of David. David's got a thousand wives, but there's one that he doesn't have. And, and she's the best looking one. And why can't I have her? I'm the king. And, and he's jealous of Uriah. And, you know, David um, goes up onto his highest balcony and he creeps Bathsheba's house and he sees her in the shower and he's got to have her and he's, he's so jealous of Uriah. And um, he ends up having Uriah killed. You know, envy's a nasty business. Now, most of the times when I preach about sin, I find it so difficult to find examples from my own life because I'm so righteous. I'm actually just checking to see if you're still listening. Uh, no, it's not hard at all for me to find examples uh, from my own life. In fact, if I, think about, um, if I think about jealousy, I can think of lots of instances in my life where I've been jealous or envious. One of the first times and most um, vivid memories that I have is of being jealous in grade three. And so I'll, I'll tell you that story. But to tell you that story, I kind of got to go back to, verse, or, uh, to uh, grade two. Um, so when we were kids, I've told you this before, we grew up in a Christian home. We went to church every single Sunday and uh, went to Sunday school every single Sunday. And so each of us kids had our own box of envelopes, the white box, kind of like we have now, same sort of deal with numbered envelopes. And so every Sunday morning, my mom would take the, the next envelope in my box and she would put a quarter into it. And then I was to take that to Sunday school and put that in the Sunday school offering. But fact is, I never did. Uh, what I would do, I would rip open that envelope. I'd take the quarter, I'd put it in my pocket, I'd throw the envelope in the garbage. And then the next day, usually on Monday, I would go to Jet Variety on Sykes Street in Meaford and I would buy a big pack of hockey cards. And uh, for a quarter, you could get a nice uh, pack of hockey cards and it would have a big uh, thing of bubble gum in it. And it was terrific. And I did that 
I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but I did that for a long time. Consequently, I have a pretty good uh, collection of hockey cards. I still have all of those cards to this day. And so in grade two and grade three, what we would do um, at school, we would take some of these cards with us to school, like if we had duplicates or something, and then you'd trade with other kids who also collected hockey cards. So if I had a spare Gump Worsley, I might trade it with my buddy who's got a spare Norm Ullman, and uh, everything's good. So one day in grade three, I've got some of my hockey cards with me, and there's a girl in grade three. She was the love of my life. Uh, her name... Uh, was Alana. I don't think she was the first, I think the first love was in kindergarten. Her name was Heather, but this was a big deal in the grade three, Alana. And I remember a day she's, um, she's looking at some of my hockey cards and I tell Alana, I like you. And you know what she says to me? I like you too. And I was over the moon. But then she said this next sentence that was just absolutely soul crushing. She said, but I like Ken Dryden 10 times more than you. That began my strong dislike of the Montreal Canadiens right there in, in uh, grade three. And here, you know, this is the very card and that's what you're seeing on the screen. Ken, darn you Ken Dryden and your luscious uh, sideburns, right? I was so envious of Ken Dryden because Alana liked him 10 times more than she liked me. And you know what I started to do? And I didn't really think through this, but I started to gossip about Ken Dryden. And so often we do that, right? Because gossip sometimes is about envy. And I would say things, well, like, Ken Dryden's not that great. He's not that good. You know, if I had, uh, it, it just seems like he's good because if I had, you know, Larry Robinson and if I had Serge Savard and Guy Lapointe playing uh, defense in front of me and if I had, uh, let's see, if I had Jacques Lemaire and if I had Guy Lafleur and if I had uh, Henri Richard, the pocket rocket, and if I had Pete Mahovlich, the little M, uh, you know, filling the net in front of me, then, you know, I'd, I'd be as good as Ken Dryden. He's overrated. He's not that good. And a lot of times, that, that's what gossip is about. It's about envy, making the other guy look, or trying to make him look like as much of a loser as you uh, do. So if you can't win in the competition game, then at least you can bring down that person at least a couple of notches in the, uh, in the eyes of uh, the observer, in this case, Alana. And you know, it'd be nice if we grew out of envy after grade three, but the fact is we don't. We have this propensity um, to want to bend things in and make it about us. It's kind of a lifetime battle. Well, what I want to do, we're, we're, we're kind of out of time here, but what I want to close with is I want to look at three things that envy does. We'll do this very quickly. Um, envy blocks the flow of love. So we've said previously in this series that love, agape, is ascribing worth to another, ascribing unsurpassable worth to another because they're created in the image and likeness of God and they're worth Jesus dying for. You cannot, at the same time, ascribe worth to someone while you are competing with them for worth. You cannot, at the same time, ascribe worth to someone 
while you're competing with them for worth. Envy blocks the flow of love. Secondly, envy gets in the bones and it makes you miserable. So when somebody else wins at the game you're trying to win, it makes you miserable. And envy is always, it's always idol specific. It's always competition specific. You know, you don't mind if somebody is successful in an area that you really don't care about. Like if I have a buddy who wins a Nobel Prize in poetry, uh, I'm gonna be legitimately happy for him because I've given up on the poetry game long ago. My dad wrote three books of poetry, but I couldn't write a poem to save my life. So if I have a friend who wins a prize for poetry, I'm gonna be seriously uh, happy for him. But when you're playing my game, I wanna win. You know, if we're competing in the same uh, area for worth, I want to win. So envy is idol specific, it's competition specific. So if looks are your idol, then the better looking or the, uh, you know, the good looking guy or the good looking girl is your competition. If houses are your idol, then the person with the bigger house or the nicer house is your competition. If accumulation is your idol, then the person who's got a little bit more than you um, is your competition. And you know, when you fall behind in that competition for worth, uh, it can be pretty miserable. And you can't genuinely be happy for somebody when they're outdueling you in a competition for worth. You know, on the outside, you might be saying, oh, I'm so happy for you. But on the inside, you're saying, why couldn't that be me? I wish that, you know, it's so unfair. And even, you know, I don't think we'd like to admit this, but very possibly even somewhere down deep in some dark recess of our soul, we kind of hope they lose it. And maybe we're even happy if they happen to lose it. Um, it's pretty ugly, really. It's pretty miserable. It gets in the bones. We become kind of toddler-like, uh, immature. But you know what? If you're running on empty, envy will characterize your life. Because if you're running on empty, you've got no choice but to participate in this competition game. And when you don't win in that game, it is miserable. The third thing, and we'll, we'll uh, finish with this, envy can lead to other sins. You know, I mentioned even in my own life that envy, for me, led to gossip. And, uh, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about gossip, and absolutely none of it is good. Gossip is just a way of trying to defuse the victory of somebody else and trying to bring them down to our own level. That's oftentimes what gossip is about. So envy can lead to gossip. You look at, you know, the story of King David, and envy leads to adultery in that case, and to lying and even to murder. It's so pervasive, and the roots of envy can run so deep, and Solomon says it can get right into the bones. It's so pervasive. You can't just will your way out of envy. You can't just say, you know what, I'm really gonna try hard not to be envious. You know, I could challenge you to do that. I could try and shame you today and say, hey, what's wrong with you? You're a Christian, you shouldn't be envious. Uh, why can't you be like me? I'm not, I could lie through my teeth and say, I'm not, I'm not envious, why are you? And, and maybe as a result of being shamed, uh, you'd go out and try really hard not to be envious, but what happens when you try really hard? Uh, it just ratchets up that suction level and it just makes the thing worse. It's this, um, it's this really uh, difficult cycle and that's why you know, that's why shooting at behavior never works. 
Like 1 Corinthians 13 is not about behavior. It's not about, you know, love is patient. It's not about trying hard to be patient. It's not about trying hard to be kind. It's not about trying hard not to be envious. Shooting at behavior doesn't work. Instead, we need to be filled with love. Well, here's the question that we want to kind of get into next week. How can we be free of envy? And the short answer is, we've already kind of just mentioned it, 1 Corinthians 13, the answer is to be filled with love. Because when you love another, when you're ascribing worth to someone else, there's something freeing about that. It frees you from competing with them uh, for worth. So next week, we want to kind of touch on three things. Um, We want to touch on quitting the competition. And what does that look like? Opting out of that competition game. How do we do that? What does that look like in our life? The second thing we want to talk about next week is we want to... We want to remember what it is that we do have, physically and materially. We want to acknowledge that in our culture, we are driven to focus on the 5% of people on planet Earth who have more than we do, rather than to focus on the 95% who have less than we do. We're, we're, um, We're shaped by our culture to pay attention to what we don't have rather than what we do have. So we want to talk about what what we actually do have next week. And then thirdly, and most importantly, next week we want to talk about remembering what we have spiritually in Jesus. Because all of your needs for worth, significance, value, affirmation, validation, and so on, can be fully met, perfectly met in Jesus Christ. Well, I hope you can join us uh, next time in SCF Online. And uh, just as we wrap up now, would you pray with me? Our Father, you are love. And the fact that we can have even any discussion at all about loving you and about loving others is only because you are love. And you loved first. You loved us first. And you showed us that love most perfectly, up close and personal, in the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. You went all in. You held nothing back. And so, Holy Spirit, would you begin to reveal to us those areas in our lives where jealousy, envy, covetousness has gotten into our bones because we're competing with others for worth, for significance, purpose, and meaning when your will, your loving plan is that we live from a place of fullness with all of those needs being fully and perfectly met in Jesus. And would you help us to see this brings freedom where we can be free to ascribe worth to others rather than to compete with them for worth. And so come Holy Spirit and do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.